Amen. Thank you, Brother Dan. Give your Bibles. Turn with me again to Matthew 11. Uh, we have spent at least two weeks. This will be our third week, I believe, on the perfect completeness of Christ. Uh, who else would match that description? No one else. Only Christ Himself. Let's go back to our text again. We've been here for several weeks. Uh, Matthew 11, verse 28 and 29. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate you reading that for us tonight. We've been here for a couple of weeks, and I think you're going to agree this is a, a very wonderful invitation. And again, who's the invitation for? Everyone. And I was thinking even just a few minutes ago back in my office, we got here a little bit early tonight, and uh, it's for everyone, but only those who see the need will come. Isn't that true? Only those who are genuinely, uh, for lack of a better phrase, sick and tired of being sick and tired of the way their life is going. When they realize that, Jesus says, come unto me and I will give you rest. So we have a, a wonderful, gracious invitation and a great promise. He says, he will give us rest. And I think you'll agree when I say tonight Christ can give us a rest like no one else or anything else can. A spiritual rest, knowing that we're at peace with God and all is well with our soul. So he gives the invitation. He makes a promise. But then he gives us two things that are required if we are going to genuinely find that rest. And that is to take his yoke upon us. And to learn of him. And then he makes a statement after he gives those two requirements. He says, I am meek and lowly in heart. In that statement. What does that mean? Was he a wimp? No. What does that mean? Oh, yeah, that's good. He has compassion. For who? That's right. Exactly right. You know, I, 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 right, without pride. Uh, so he says he's meek and lowly. Does that mean he's weak? No, in fact, just the opposite, right? I mean, he's not, he's not weak at all. But at any rate, those who realize and are weighted down, burdened uh, with their life, burdened with guilt, those who really want to find rest, Jesus said, you come to me and guess what you'll find? You'll find rest. You will find rest for your soul. How many glad you came? Amen. Find that rest that only Jesus can offer. Now, again, the only way to find that rest, number one, respond to the invitation, but take his yoke upon us and learn of him. And we spent a couple of weeks looking at what it means to take Christ's yoke upon us, and it really simply means surrendering our wills to his, submitting to Christ's authority in our lives. And we began last week looking at what it means to learn of me. Now, I think we went earlier in our study on this to Hebrews, and we talked about, uh, Hebrews speaks about how that uh, in the past Christ spoke, God spoke through many different ways, different manners, but now he speaks through who? Through his son, through Jesus Christ. So not only is he the final spokesman for God, uh, not only is he the one by whom the divine will is fully uttered, again, all the other problems only had parts of it, but he's also the grand example for you and I to follow. So again, not taking away from the Old Testament prophecies, they were from God, but which of those prophets were perfect men or women? None of them were. Only Christ is the grand example. He's the one that we are to follow. Now, again, remember, uh, not only did Christ proclaim the truth, he, is, he became the embodiment of truth. And that's kind of interesting when he stood uh, before his accusers. Uh, I can't remember which one it was. Uh, they asked him, it might have been Pilate, what is truth? 
Well, who is truth? Jesus is, okay? Jesus Christ is truth. So again, he was a personal, uh, he exemplified it very clearly in his life. And he left you and I an example that we might follow in his footsteps by imitating the life that he lived. We've covered a little bit so far. Number one, as Christians, we need to imitate his holiness. But tonight, we're going to look at the second part. We should live in conformity to his example. And remember, he is our example. And the very honor of Christ demands that you and I, as Christians, conform to his example. Now, again, we're looking at conforming to Christ and that that conformity always begins on the inside. It's an inside, an inward conformity. And by the way, are we to resemble Christ on the outside as well? Yes. But the only way that can happen, there has to first be an inward conformity in our life. And one of the reasons that's sometimes so difficult for us is because of our pride and because that we have impatient hearts. But we have to conform to him. And Jesus says, I've got a solution for everything. For your pride, for your impatience. He says, take me as your example. And the great thing is this. Does Christ ask us to do anything that he hasn't done himself? No. Does he ask us to suffer anything he has not suffered himself? No. He simply does not. And he says, all I'm asking you to do is to live by the example I lived before you. And by the way, remember, I did it for your benefit, not mine. I did it on your account. And all I ask is that you walk in that path that I've laid out for you. And if you'll do that and look carefully, you'll see my footsteps all along the way. How many are glad that Jesus walked with us everywhere we go? Now remember, what a great argument he presents here. And what a wonderful recommendation because uh, the yoke of Christ uh, to those who love him, we know that he bore it first himself. He bore that yoke himself. Now, it may never happen to you, but it's happened to me for every once in a while. Every once in a while we get discouraged, don't we? When trials come, when tribulations come, uh, difficult times in life, uh, we tend to become disheartened. When those times come, we have to remember the yoke that Jesus bore. And we've got to learn of Jesus. We need to admire <coughs> and imitate his faithfulness. <clears throat> now, the first thing we need to remember that when Christ was here on earth for those uh, 33 and a half years, about three years of public ministry, he always had it easy. Remember that? Oh, I must have read the wrong pages, right? We know he didn't have it easy. Look what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews 12, verse 3. Now, thank you, Phyllis. Now, notice if we're reading from the book of Hebrews... And it's a letter to Hebrew Christians who were suffering persecution. Uh, A lot of things were going on, and many of them were considering going back under the law. And the writer of Hebrews doesn't deny that things are tough. He realizes they are. He understands what those he's writing to are going through. But he says, whenever you consider giving up, think about Jesus. Think about what he endured for us, that we might have eternal life. And the warning here is, if you don't consider the things he went, that went against him, the contradiction he faced in life, those who came against him in every way you could think about, there's a danger you'll become weary and you'll grow weak in your minds. So what's the advice here? When times are tough, look to who? Yeah. Think about him. Now, it's interesting. We know God became flesh, Christ. 
Was there a purpose in that? Yes, what was it? What, what was the ultimate purpose? Okay. He did come to save sinners, but what did he have to do to do that, ultimately? He had to die. He came to die. And the earliest glimpse of his mission we find in the book of Luke, I believe it is. Don't have the verse on our notes tonight. He was 12 years old. And his parents left him. They find him back teaching. And they question him, you know, where have you been, blah, blah, blah. And he said, I must be about the will of my father. He knew the will of God. Now, isn't it fair to say he had a, wrong, a long road to follow? And there would be a lot of hardships along the way. So he knew he had a mission. He knew he came to save sinners. And he knew that ultimately he would have to die on the cross for the sins of mankind. And what's interesting, in order to finish his race, would you agree with me that Jesus Christ endured great suffering to finish a race? And it wasn't easy for him. It wasn't easy. And because of his example, of his endurance, even during great suffering, uh, because of that, he can now be an inspiring example for all of us who face hardships along the way. And when we are tempted to focus on our own trials, the writer of Hebrews says, think about what Jesus endured. Think about what he went through when those sinful people did those awful things to him. What were some of the things they did to him? You what? All right. Pulled his beard out. Spit on him. Put a crown of thorns on him. Now, uh, And, of course, ultimately crucified him. But did he give up? No. Did he give in to fatigue? Did what? Yeah. He didn't give in to it. He didn't let discouragement stop him. He didn't allow despair to fill his life, if you will, and hinder his race. And the writer of Hebrews says, if we'll focus on what Christ did for us. And by the way, who did he do it for? For us, not for himself. He was sinless. But he did it for us that we might have eternal life. And so the writer of Hebrews says, if we focus on what he did for us, we won't become weary, and we won't give uh, up. Now, the, the Bible is the only book I know that tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And the Bible is very clear. Trials can cause believers to be discouraged. Trials can cause believers to be led in despair. But when those difficult times happen in our lives... We can remember how Jesus Christ endured. And again, who did he do it for? For me. And that endurance can inspire us to keep on with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a great point. He did it for us because he knew we could not do it for ourselves. Yes, indeed. Throughout the history of the church, there have been countless martyrs, prisoners for their faith in Christ, some of them were, many who were persecuted. And without fail, they endured the suffering because they focused on how Jesus suffered for them. 
they realized what Jesus had done for them. Why can't we do that for him? Now, I want to suggest to you tonight, and I think it's scriptural, that the suffering Jesus experienced surpassed any suffering we could ever face in our life. Any suffering we could face in our life. And so whenever hardships come, whenever discouragement comes, we cannot and we must not lose sight of the big picture. And here's what's interesting. We are not alone. Jesus stands with us. Now, think about this for a moment. When Christ gave the great commission to the disciples, he told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Can you imagine what went through their minds? In their minds, they're thinking, wow, Lord, this is impossible. We tried to do it here in Israel. Well, for the most part, even the unsaved Jews knew about God. And you want us to take the gospel to the whole world? But then Jesus gave him a promise. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So as we go, guess who goes with us? Jesus does. He's with us every step of the way. So the writer of Hebrews is challenging us when we're facing trials and tribulation. He's challenging us to make a comparison between ourselves and Christ. Between what he endured and what we are struggling with. And if we do that, really consider what he endured and what we're struggling with, how do they compare? They don't. I think we'd be ashamed of ourselves. I uh, I say often that I don't really like Dick Harvey. I haven't liked Paul Snodgrass for years. And he knows that. Uh, he told me years ago, you just wait five more years. Well, I did, and he was right. All of a sudden, the body starts hurting in places you didn't know you had. And mine are minimal. I, I, I confess that. And I think about when I complain sometimes. I tell Pam, I, I'm, I'm going to try to stop complaining. Because as soon as I do, I can think of four or five people that I know in our church that are going through a lot more than I'm going through. But even if that doesn't happen, Jesus went a lot, uh, through a lot more than I'll ever go through. And it makes me ashamed of myself for complaining. First Peter chapter 2, look at verse 23. Thank you, Dan. Now, uh, Peter's not asking a question. He's carrying on a thought he has in the previous verses about Jesus Christ. So the who is Jesus Christ? Now, I've got to ask you a question. What did Peter know about Jesus? What do you mean a lot? Yeah, for years. And he was there when he was crucified. Do you think Peter knew that Jesus endured Horrible abuse and suffering? Sure he did. And Peter says when he was reviled, that word reviled includes abusive and insulting speech. Peter said while he was on that cross, and not just there, but especially on the cross, Christ did not return abuse, and he did not threaten. Now think about it for a moment. Uh, for example, 
if they were to bind us like they did Jesus, arrest us like they did Jesus, beat us like they did Jesus, what could we have done about it? Why not, Dan? Yeah, we couldn't do anything about it except, yeah, do it. Let it happen. Now, I asked you a moment ago, <clears throat> what did Jesus know? I mean, what did Peter know about Jesus? And when Jesus asked that famous question in, in Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? Peter said, what? You're the Christ. Peter knew who he was. Now, think about this. When they brought him to trial, they hired... False witnesses do what? Yeah, testified lie. No. They had to make up stuff. And even then, they couldn't get an agree on it. But here's the thing. Can you imagine how tempting it would have been to expose those liars at that trial? Could he expose them if he wanted to? Say what? Yeah. Yeah. He could, but he could. That sounds like an oxymoron to me, Phyllis. He had the power to do it, but he knew he couldn't if he was going to die on Calvary. He didn't hurl back. Jesus knew that those hecklers would not have the final say. Who was going to have the final say? God was. Yeah. So Jesus committed to the one who would judge righteously. <clears throat> I caught a, just a portion of a program. Uh, Pam had a couple of doctor's appointments this morning. We went and uh, I don't remember which program I was listening to, and this caught a part of it. And uh, the question came up about Calvinism and uh, Arminian, Arminianism and about the extremes of both doctrines. And uh, the thing both groups agree on is the sovereignty of God. God is in control. Now, the one group, Calvin to the extreme, says we have no will of our own, no free will. So God predetermines who will go to heaven, and he predetermines who will go to hell. And that's called, in their terminology, double predestination. Now, that's the extreme Calvinism. But both groups agree in the sovereignty of God. As Arminian, we believe that God gives us a free will, and that while God is sovereign, we are still held accountable for our choices. And uh, again, you can't put them together, but they're both in the Word of God. And I'm not going to take time tonight to uh, to exegete the whole difference between the two, uh, but both are clearly 
found in the Word of God. So, even Jesus regarded God as sovereign. Now, listen to this, folks. We mentioned that taking our yoke upon, his yoke upon us is submitting to him. Christ also took a yoke when he submitted to the Father. Wouldn't you agree? And so he regards God as sovereign. And so rather than revile back, throw words back at those who heckled him, he put the outcome of his life into the hands of God. Into the hands of God. You know why he did that? He was confident of God's righteous judgment. Lord, give me that confidence. Give me that confidence. Now, Peter mentioned to us in our text that he committed himself and his sufferings to God. And that word committed in the Greek, is in the, in the, the verb is imperfect. That means he kept on committing. Well, this is a one-time thing. He kept on trusting in God. He kept on committing himself and committing his suffering to God. And he did that so that you and I and all believers who are suffering can entrust themselves and their suffering into God's hand. I was talking with Brother Mike Grow, and he didn't get good news from his MRI. They're still waiting to see the doctor, but uh, from past experience, I, I think Mike understand what's coming. And Brother Paul, you told me the same thing through the years. Whose hands is it in? It's in God's hands. It's in God's hand. And uh, I've heard Brother Paul say that through the years. I've heard Brother Mike Gross say that. And I pray that uh, in times like that, in my own life, I would recognize that God is sovereign. It is in His hands. How many know that Christ is coming again? And when he does, he will ultimately right every wrong. And that in itself is a great comfort to those who are suffering. It helps them respond correctly to your suffering. Understand, God is still in control. So Jesus said, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. So we're to admire and imitate his meekness. And Peter says, when he reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. In fact, if you remember correctly, one of the last things Jesus did for those who were crucifying him was when he was on the cross. What did he do for them? He prayed for them, didn't he? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He wept for his enemies, even prayed for his murderers. And so that's why we need to let this same mind be in us, which is also in Christ Jesus. When we find it difficult to walk in his precepts, when the world is trying to pull us away, when our own flesh is pleading with us, Jesus says, learn of me. Romans 15, look at verse 3. For even Christ pleased not Himself. If we are honest, most of the time, who's the most important person in your life? Me. I tell people all the time, after me, you come first. And we know that's not good. And there's no doubt that Jesus Christ was the strongest human being that ever lived. Now, and I'm not talking about like Atlas. Because he didn't please himself. 
He did the will of God. Now, let me stop here for a moment. Because I can hear somebody say, well, no wonder he was God. So what? Well, he had a mission fleet. But do you think the temptations were real? Sure. Now think about this. When he prayed in the garden, the Bible says his perspiration, sweat became as great drops of blood. Now I'm not saying that they turned to blood. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is he was agonizing so much. Wasn't just a mild perspiration like your wife off your brow. It was doing what? It was literally dripping off of him. Meaning what? <laughs> well, was he praying one of these now lay me down to sleep prayers? No. He was agonizing with the Father. But then he said, not my will, but your will. So I think it's evident if he had the choice if you're from the country, you might say, if he had his druthers, <laughs> he'd druther not go to the Calvary. Would you agree with that? Sure. He would rather not. In fact, if, if he were living to please himself, that's a path he would not choose. But Phyllis, I like what you said. He knew he had to. Because his mission was not to please himself, but to please who? Please God. He took the yoke of God upon him. So he pleased not himself. He didn't consider what was safe and easy. He would have preferred that. But he focused on what the will of the Father was. Say it again. Yes, and what was necessary. Right and necessary. So that reminds me, as, Christ, as a Christian, we need to pray all the time that we allow Christ to strengthen us because Jesus says, the world hated me, and guess what? They're going to hate you. And we're to resemble him in every area of our life. We're to shine as lights in a dark, selfish world. And we're to do it for the glory of his grace. But does the Bible say that will always be easy? It will not be. I remember when I first began to teach Sunday school, I was teaching a teen class, maybe a junior class, been too many years ago. And, man, I was just discovering some things I never knew in the Bible. And, you know, once you're saved, the Bible, you know, begins to, how should I say it, illuminate itself, doesn't it? The Spirit of God speaks to your heart and opens it up. And I, I'd come across verse, and I thought, wow, when, when I when I share, the people are going to just throng to Christ. They're going to they're gonna hear what i got to say. And, and I'll never forget the first time I was going to witness to my dad. I thought, man, when... When my dad hears this, that, that the Bible says that one that there was a time when over 500 people saw the resurrection of Christ, he'll surely believe. Guess what I found out? It's not always so. So it's not easy. And that's why we have to pray, Lord, strengthen our souls. Don't let us become disheartened. Because here's what I want you to know. First of all, there is truth. Jesus said his word is truth. And no matter how many choose not to believe that truth, does it change the truth? No. So don't allow the world to discourage us. Pray for God's strength. And whenever we are facing a time in our life of discouragement, and we're tempted to draw back from uh, the plans of God in our life, we have to look to Jesus for example. He didn't draw back. John 18, verse 11. 
Thank you, Dan. Do you remember what happened in this incident? A couple of the gospel writers mentioned it. What happened? Yeah. Now, Dan, I can't prove this, but I don't think Peter was aiming for the ear. What do you think he was trying to cut off? Probably his head, okay? Uh, wow. When we know that Jesus healed the ear, right? Even he's being arrested. And he says, uh, Peter, put that sword away. Put it away. And what was the question he asked Peter? The cup which my father has given me, shall I not drink of it? First of all, um, I don't blame Peter. He's he's showing his what? His loyalty. Right? Although, Jesus don't do that, Peter. And what Peter needed to know, and by the way, remember that time when Jesus addressed Peter and said, Satan, get behind me? Because Peter didn't want him to do this. And so when Peter drew that sword, Jesus said, put it away. And the reason he said put it back is because Jesus was determined to do the will of the Father. Now, we're not told exactly the time frame or how long that prayer lasted in the garden. We know he prayed a couple of times. But I want to say tonight, that prayer didn't end with a question, Mark. It ended what? With a period. Yeah. From that point on, there was no doubt. Well, there wasn't any doubt to begin with, but still yet, Christ put a period in the sentence. The cup which my father has given me shall not drink of it. <clears throat> you remember the time when James and John the sons of thunder say, hey, mom, go ask Jesus. There's something special about sending your mom, isn't it? Huh? <laughs> go ask Jesus, can we have number one and number two seats beside you? The question Jesus asked him, are you willing to drink of the cup that I'm going to drink of? Now, they didn't know how to answer, but Jesus said, yes, you will. You'll drink of it. But in the Old Testament, the, the cup many times referred to the outpouring of God's wrath. So when Jesus <coughs> told Peter, I have to drink the cup the Father's given me, that cup meant suffering. It meant isolation, and it meant death. How did he suffer? How did he suffer, ultimately? Yeah. And whether or not it actually happened, there's a debate among theology about that. But Jesus really felt like God had forsaken him. He felt like God had forsaken him. He felt all alone. Suffering, isolation, death. That's what that cup meant. He would have to endure all of that to atone for the sins of the world. And that included mine and included yours.
So Peter's heart was in the right place. No doubt about that. He was showing tremendous loyalty. But he missed the point. All that was happening that week and that night and the day of the crucifixion was all a part of the plan of God. Oh, yeah, they all missed it, yeah. Now, we don't have time to go there tonight, and I didn't have it in my notes. But in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches his first sermon. And he's not going to let the Jews off the hook. They, they, they crucified him. But he said, you have to understand something. This wasn't by accident. This was because it was God's determined will. It was God who delivered him to be crucified. It was God who allowed him to be crushed. Now, you're still guilty. But it's all the plan of God. So there's Peter, trying to protect Jesus. He pulls a sword, wounds the high priest servant. And Jesus said, Peter, put the sword away and allow the plan of God to unfold. You ever try to take matters in your own hands? And sometimes it's tempting to do that. Tempting to force the issue. At least try to dictate the direction. But my friend, when it comes to our walk with God, it'll lead to sin. It will lead to sin. We need to trust God to work out his plan. Now think about it for a moment, folks. If Peter had his way, Christ would not have gone to Calvary. And we would still be dead in our sins. So I don't know about you. Thank God Jesus did drink of the cup. And all of the suffering were completely on our behalf. Jesus said, learn of me. Again, the writer of Hebrews says that God speaks to us now through Christ. and We have his word. But how many know that Jesus didn't just teach through precept. He thought he taught by example. He didn't just teach by word of mouth, but he taught by a life of perfect obedience to the Father and to the Father's will. And so he tells us to be meek and lowly. And when he spoke those words here in verse 29 of Matthew 11, he was wearing that yoke. He was submitting to the will of the Father. And so while wearing that yoke, he exemplified what true meekness and lowliness is. Now again, did he have to do that? Really? No. Could he have come off that cross? Yes. And and so we see the example of a perfect teacher. And he's showing us in his own selflessness what it means to be meek and lowly, to learn of him, and to take his yoke upon us. Now remember, he's the king of kings. Um, The other night on PBS, we don't have cable uh, TV, but... They play movies once in a while, and they played the original Heat of the Night movie. Anybody ever seen that movie? Sidney Poitier in there and and all that. Uh, That was filmed in Sparta, Illinois. 
uh, and uh, we had never actually lived in Illinois, in Florida, but uh, within eight, eight or nine miles. So in 1967, that was a big deal. And Pam and I watching that movie, and we're thinking, wow, uh, Sparta, Illinois, actually Illinois as a whole, is a good place to be from. Uh, okay? Uh, somebody told me the only good thing they saw come out of Illinois was an empty bus. But at any rate, southern Illinois is unbelievably uh, well, nothing important hardly ever happens there. That was a big deal, that movie coming to Sparta, Illinois. That wasn't, the whole thing wasn't filmed there. Uh, you'll see the police department. That My uncle was, at that time, he was on the police department. Now, he didn't play in the movie. Uh, but at any rate, uh, and there, a lot of things went on there. But think about this. Pam, we, were sitting, we thought, where in the world did those actors stay? I, I mean, the only motel in Sparta you didn't want to stay at if you lived in the area. I mean, you'd almost rather sleep on the sidewalk. So we're thinking, where would they want to stay? Well, we Googled it, of course. We couldn't resist it. And they stayed where I went to high school in Belleville, Illinois. It wasn't much better, but at least they had a big hotel. And that wasn't as big as some of the ones we have around here today. And I thought about Jesus. When he came to our world, he was the king of kings and lord of lords. And who did he come to? Was he born in a palace? No. Say it again, Dan. In a manger. He didn't hobnob with with royalty. And he was the most royal person that ever lived. Jesus was. (laughs) And he chose for his ambassadors fishermen. Think about that. And he, he, he sought out the most despised people. In fact, if you remember, who did the angels announced the coming of Christ to? First of all, the shepherds. That's the lowest rung on the social ladder. They even dubbed him a friend of public and the sinners. And Jesus said, learn of me. Look how I lived. Listen to how I talked, but look how I lived before you. I am meek and lowly in heart. And folks, those things can only be learned from Christ. Only from Christ. And that's why he says, learn of me. What a Savior. Now think about this. (coughs) Excuse me. We're challenged, Jesus says, learn of me. Take my yoke upon you, for I am meek and lowly. Learn of me. Can you learn that at a seminary? Can't learn at a college. Preachers can't teach you that. Churches can't give it to you. No type of self-culture will cause us to reach that goal. Luke 10, look at verse 38 to Thank you, Phyllis. The Bible says they came into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. 
She had a sister, Mary. Now, how many know if you receive Jesus, you got 12 other people with you? Years and years ago, one of my neighbors told me, he said, you know the problem with company? If they're there at your house and you sit down to eat, they want to eat with you. So it wasn't just fixing for Jesus, it's for the whole entourage. And Martha, man, she is preparing a meal. Where's Mary? At Jesus' feet. You know the story. Martha's a little upset. Come on, Lord, at least you can start frying the chicken. And we got you and 12 preachers here, you know. And Jesus said, Martha, you're troubled about a lot of things. Now, again, he didn't blame her for being concerned about the meal. And he didn't scold her for trying to make him and disciples welcome. But he said, Martha, you're troubled about a lot of things. Many things. And the problem is, Martha, you're not making time for what's most important. The good part. Spending time at my feet. And folks, that's the key. If we are going to learn of Jesus, we're going to have to learn to spend time with him. We can't learn anywhere else, or from anyone else for that matter. Learn of him. And there was nothing wrong with Martha's desire to serve. But if we're not careful, serving for Christ will soon become just mere busy work and no longer full devotion to God. So what's wrong with her serving? Someone had to do it or no one would have eaten. But Jesus said, Martha, I'm not going to send Mary away. She had chosen to sit at Jesus' feet and my friend, Jesus will never send anybody away who wants to be with him. Let's stop there for tonight. Thank you, Lord.